as we are studying through the book of Revelation, it also seems like we're living through the book of Revelation. And what else can happen in 2020? Um, I'm in the sound booth this morning um, during worship first service, and um, Eric, who's on the projection, um, he said something to me about his screen shaking. I was like, man, I'm not touching the table is what I'm thinking. And I didn't pay any, any mind to it. And I come and do the service, leave out, go next door. Pastor Jeffrey's like, did you feel that? And I'm like, feel what? Well, at 8.07 a.m., there was a 5.1 earthquake in North Carolina, Allegheny County, which is northwestern North Carolina, um, 3.6 miles deep. It's the largest earthquake that we've had in North Carolina since 1916, so over 100 years since we've had one of that size in our state, felt as far away as Georgia, Tennessee, and throughout Virginia. Um, Pastor Jeffrey felt it in his office. And uh, we over here, we probably just thought it was the train doing worship because <laughs> we, you know, got the train coming through all, during service. Um, so it's very interesting. Um, but really, earthquakes are popping up more frequently. As I've been telling you, they are increasing. You can find several uh, earthquake trackers online um, that, where you can see the increase in speed and magnitude and frequency and location uh, around the globe, actually, uh, as you can really tell that the earth is groaning, uh, as Scripture tells us that the earth is groaning, waiting for the re revelation of the sons of God, um, and which is really all of us. We are the sons of God in the New Testament, uh, being born of his spirit and having his spirit upon us. Uh, not to mention other things that have been happening throughout the year. I mean, just the amounts of rain and floods in the Asian countries and the earthquakes that have popped up in many different places in the world and the locust plagues that have happened uh, and have moved throughout causing various types of famines and things of that sort. On top of all of the other things that are happening, as uh, I've been telling you, Jesus gives us the birth pains and he continues to tell us things that we need to be on the lookout for. Uh, persecution in the church is a big one. Uh, which is happening and has been happening uh, frequently around the world. Um, in India, from the Hindus, it, it's kind of spiked this year. We know from the Muslims in Africa, our brothers and sisters in Africa have been uh, uh, killed and raped and churches burned by Islamic groups uh, throughout the Middle East. Uh, there's been a lot of persecutions against Christians as well. Um, with that, a lot of uh, revival happening as you see Christians on the streets of countries praising God, the word going forth, prayer happening. So that's good, too. In America, Bibles being burned most recently. Um, Bibles being burned, persecution uh, starting to heat up a little bit here. And we'll kind of see the heart behind that in chapter 11. Um, and even today in certain parts of our countries, pastors having to go into their pulpits not knowing whether they and their congregations will receive citations or even, if possible, um, experience a, uh, an arrest-type situation. Um, one county in California declared sanctuary for its churches um, in, defiant of, in defiance of their governor, which I think is really, really good. And, you know, my prayer for the church because so we have these extremes where you have people who like to be survivalists and you know so what they do is they focus on building bunkers and stocking up stuff so they can survive 20 years and then you have others within the church that well oh we don't have to worry about nothing we won't get raptured anyway 
Um, and so you got all of those extremes. And so I battle, I pray, I say, well, Lord, you know, because I'm responsible for everything that comes out of my mouth, Lord, what is it that you would have me say to the church just so that we can always be balanced? What would you like for us to know? And the thing that I want you to understand is with the school of ministry, with discipleship being the focus, we don't know. And I keep telling you these things. And, you know, I sound like a broken record, but you don't know at what point it's going to be difficult for us to meet or illegal for churches to meet or anything that we could see at some point in the future. And that's why inductive Bible study course would be really helpful for you to take to learn really how to get into the word of God yourself and to seek his face, to hear his voice. So I want us to be able to, in a healthy way, have home churches if we have to, home fellowships and things of that sort. And so that is extremely important to me because of the times that we live in. And I, my prayer is that the, the Christians would have good discernment. Jesus rebuked the Jews, the Jewish leaders in particular, because they could look at the sky and determine what the weather was going to look like for that day. But he says that they couldn't look at the signs of the times and discern where they were living as far as prophetic times were concerned. So he rebuked them. Obviously, their Messiah standing in front of them and they were missing him. And so likewise, we need to also be able to discern the times that we live in as we move forward and, and to really be faithful to walking with the Lord. Amen. And that's all I'll say for today. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, you know, we began that last week. And just for the sake of review, in verses 1 through 6, you remember as we began to read, John was given a measuring rod. Y'all remember that, right? Remember the rules. And he was told to rise and measure the temple. So there is all of a sudden a temple at that point in the tribulation. So he was told to measure the temple, measure the altar, and measure those who worship there, which was a very interesting statement. And what we determined is that John was being asked to measure, if you will, uh, the condition of what was happening there at this newly built temple in Jerusalem as this worship was beginning to, to happen there uh, in, in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. And remember that from chapters 10 through uh, uh, right around the end of chapter 11, or at least verse 15 of chapter 11, this is kind of an insert, if you will, a parenthesis, a parenthetical insert between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet of the other things that we need to see and consider that's going on during the tribulation period. So we've been looking at the wrath unfold as the trumpets were being blasted, the seals were opened, then the trumpets were being blasted. Now we pause and we also see that there are other things happening. In particular, these two witnesses have been witnessing. A temple has been being uh, built during this time as well. And so he's told to measure it. And he was told in verse 2, remember to leave out the outer court of the temple and don't measure it. No need to measure it. I'm not concerned about what's going on there because it's not of me. There's nothing I need to take inventory of within that process. But leave it out. It's been given to the Gentiles, it says in verse 2, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months or Three and a half years. Y'all remember this, right? Y'all with me? Okay, and so we know that the second part of the tribulation, Antichrist will operate from that temple because he's going to go in that temple at about the three and a half year mark, and he is going to walk into the holy place, and he's going to sit there and declare himself to be God. 
and that they should worship him like God, one of the things that will open the eyes of the Jews to realize they followed the wrong leader, this rider of the white horse that went out under the opening of the first seal in chapter 6 is going to be exposed starting in this chapter and definitely in chapter 13 as the beast who leads this global world system which is being developed Uh, now framework being laid for that even as we speak because in order for him to rise to power and to accomplish uh, full all-out control of the population of the globe with only a seven-year period of time he has to have a system that he can move in and take over that framework must be in place how many of you understand what I'm saying okay good all right and so we see that happening verse three if you remember We saw these two witnesses, and it says that power was given. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Very interesting, 1,260 days, or again, exactly three and a half years if you do the math. Why 42 months for the Gentiles and 1,260 days for for the two witnesses? Maybe because of the differences in calendars, and the two witnesses are for the Jewish nation, whereas he was mentioning the Gentiles trampling the city for 42 months in in, in verses above. Not really sure, but they both were three and a half years. So we remember that. And then in verse four, he says, these are my two olive trees and the two lampstands before the God of the earth. And remember, Scripture interpreting Scripture, really needing to understand the Old Testament, to understand the book of Revelation, it points us directly back to the book of Zechariah, in which in the book of Zechariah we saw two olive trees feeding, um, directly feeding olive oil to the menorah, which spoke of a continual supply of oil, oil representing the Holy Spirit and giving us a picture of a continual source of power and flow of the Holy Spirit at that time. And the word to Zerubbabel was that wouldn't be by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Remember that. And then God goes on to say, these are my two anointed ones in the book of Zechariah chapter 4. You should have read it for homework. And the picture here is of these two witnesses coming under the continual flow and power of the Holy Spirit who will prophesy for these three and a half years. And we speculated as to who they were, remember? And there was a lot of speculation of which we won't go back through it now, but many people have different views upon it. Some think as Enoch and, and Elijah. Some think that, that John the... John the uh, that who's writing this book is one of them because he had to eat the little book in chapter uh, 10 and he was told he had to prophesy to many nations and, and, and going forth. So some people think it's that. Uh, some people think Zacharias here. Some people think it's Joshua and Zerubbabel from the Old Testament. But we know from looking at scripture that it seems to be Moses and Elijah, the two who met with Jesus on Mount Transfiguration, the two who represent all of the signs that are given here because in verse 5 it says, if anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. I'm talking fast because this is review. And in verse 6, and these have power to shut up heaven so that it does not rain in the days of their prophecy. And they have the power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And so all of these plagues and signs that they have are, if you will, directly pointing to the same ones that Moses and Elijah demonstrated in their earthly ministry. And so it could be that. And I believe that it's Moses and Elijah also because these two witnesses are for the Jewish nation. Remember that in the Old Testament says that 
Everything has to be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses, which is why it's two of them. I don't think it's Enoch because Enoch was not Jewish. He didn't die, but he wasn't Jewish. Abraham wasn't Jewish uh, because he was a Gentile from the Ur of Chaldeans. Isaac's the first Jew, <laughs> the one first born, if you will, technically. And I'm doing that to mess with you, but to make you think as well. These are witnesses of the Jewish nation. Why? Because the church is removed. Remember that this final 70th week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy, this final time frame, these seven years are called a time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. It's a time where God is revealing himself to the Jewish nation and their eyes, their eyes, the blindness has been lifted so that they can come to salvation. The church is already in heaven. So I think these two witnesses are two Jewish witnesses to bring signs, to witness to the Jews. What is their witness? What are they saying? We don't know, but they're clothed in sackcloth, which tells us that their ministry and their witness and their preaching is one of repentance because the Jewish nation is in a situation during this time. They're in a situation where they're building a temple of which the Lord will not inhabit, being led by a leader that they're embracing as Messiah, who's actually Antichrist. And God is trying to get their attention. And so with all of that, let's dig into the new stuff today. Started in verse 7. And why don't we read from verse 7 down through verse 14, and then we'll pray and dive in. So if you there, I got to move fast. If you're there, say Amen. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here and they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them in the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell in the earthquake 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven pay attention to that and the second woe is past behold the third woe is coming quickly and so, Father, we thank you this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds, Lord, removing the cares of this life from us, Lord God, and even the distractions from the room, that we may clearly hear what you have to say. And I pray you would redeem the time and speak to us, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Verse 7, we have to move swiftly. So in verse 7, notice it says, and when they had finished their testimony, which I love, uh, testimony, the root word here is martyrs. It means witness, a testimony or a witness. And, uh, and, you know, it's interesting in how all of this is worded. When they had finished their testimony. In other words, they had a testimony in the sense of testifying of that which is true. 
uh, as, as we do as well and, and all do. In fact, um, we see that used in Scripture. John the Baptist had a testimony. What was his testimony? Well, the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 7 says, This man came for a witness, that's our word, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He came to bear witness of the Messiah or Jesus Christ. So there's a witness that has to be, uh, if you will, given out or spoken as well as it speaks of the character of one's life. How one lives is also a witness. We see it used in 3 John 1.12 this way when, when, when John was saying Demetrius has a good testimony from all. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, when it says, Moreover, he must have a good testimony, speaking of leadership, among those who are outside. In other words, a Christian leader must have a good testimony within the world. And so it's used both ways. It, it speaks of a, of a message, a ministry that you're called to do directly as well as the indirect reflection of your life towards the world. And it's very interesting as we look at the timing of this. It says, and they, when they had finished their testimony, that's when the beast is able to overcome them. But not until then. And I think that is a very special thing for us to be able to just meditate on for a quick second. Because likewise, these two men have a testimony that they're given to the nation. We don't know what their message was, but we know it was one of repentance to, to, put, to turn uh, Israel to God. Their lives also will become a testimony. In what way? Well, when we see them die and in a minute resurrect, that will be a testimony to the Jewish nation as well. So not only do they have a direct oral testimony, a ministry, their life becomes a witness or testimony in itself. God used them this way, and I, and I love that. It's the mystery of our lives. God will use us to witness, then he will sometimes use what he does with our lives as a witness, which is why when we live by faith, not by sight, in faith and not in fear, when we are still the same peculiar people that can rejoice at a funeral because the person laying in the casket got saved, when everybody else is crying and losing their mind because they don't know how they will go on without them, and we grieve too, but as those with hope, not without hope, we even approach the coronavirus that way, or we should, or anything else we see in faith, knowing that there's a living God that we're still serving, amen? It's a witness to those who are fearful and don't know what to do. And here we are like, well, God hadn't changed. That's the way Christians are supposed to live. Jesus doesn't change no matter what we see. And as we go into the last days, we need to get this straight now so that we can continue to live that way, that we may be a witness. Because the truth of the matter is that nothing could harm these two dudes until their witness was finished, which tells us this, that not only does our witness, if you will, to God maybe involve some specifics about how we live by faith and what we say, but that our witness also has a timetable tied to it, a direct time frame, just like these guys. They had 1,260 days. David knew he had a divine time frame because Saul was trying to kill him. David's playing a harp and ducking, ducking javelins at the same time. 
whole army behind him, yet he couldn't die because God said he was going to be king. He wasn't king yet, and it gives us an indication of something. And David's the one who then wrote, all my days are numbered for me yet before any of them are formed, before I'm even formed. He wrote that. And that means the Bible says that God knows the day of our birth. He knows the day of our death. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. He knows all of this. All of the days are numbered. It's all worked out in heaven. Therefore, as I'm living out my testimony until he's done, I can't go anywhere. And this is the, listen, this is the testimony that I have from the scripture and what I believe by the spirit. And I hope you do as well. And that's the faith of the Christian, the believer. For 1,260 days, the whole world was ready for these men to die. Tired of hearing what they had to say and they couldn't go anywhere because God gave them power for 1,260 days. I love that. It should speak to you somehow in some way. And so notice that when their testimony was finished, the beast, now we see this word introduced to us, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Who is the beast? Some believe the beast is the devil himself and others, and I think we would do well to probably consider him as antichrist. But what we need to see, and this is the more important part of this, what we need to see is what's being introduced to us in the next two chapters is the unholy trinity of the tribulation period, the unholy trinity. Because what we're going to see is that Satan is going to be given to us, described to us as the dragon, the serpent from old. That's who we're going to see Satan. We're going to find that Satan is going to give his power to the beast that comes out of the sea. And Paul even talks about that in 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that he comes by through the working power of Satan and then this beast who is Antichrist is going to give his power to a beast that comes out of the that land who has the power to do the same signs that the first beast does in his present. And that beast is called the false prophet. When we get to chapter 13, we'll see it. And so we're going to see the dragon who gives power to the beast, the Antichrist, who also gives his power to the false prophet and thus we have a unholy trinity which we need to understand because we're going to see these three clowns through um as we continue in the tribulation period okay y'all with me y'all doing okay y'all rough service all right so he has power to overcome them and to kill them but they were protected for the first 1200 and 60 days of their ministry of the first three and a half years of the tribulation, they were protected. And when their ministry was finished, God took his hand off, but he's even going to use what, what happens to them next as a testimony back to the world. One of the things that we know and we understand is that in this period of time that we live in, Satan cannot overcome us. Because Jesus says that upon this rock, this confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. So in this age, the church cannot be defeated by Satan or Gavin Newsom. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's the governor of, of uh, where is he at? California. But what I'm trying to say is this. I mean, the church will suffer persecution from time to time, but will not be defeated. We will stand and we will shine in this time until the, the, the age of the, of the Gentiles has been fulfilled and God will snatch us out of here to meet our Lord in the air. But during the tribulation period, the, 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 the Antichrist has power to overcome the saints. 
the tribulation saints. They die for their faith. So I take a moment to plead with you again if you don't know Jesus or if you're watching this after the church has left and you come to realize it and you're listening to my voice right now, do not play around because he has the power to overcome those who are living during that time. There's no protection for them. And so notice in verse 8, as we continue, verse 8, it says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And so we got to catch this scene. Their bodies will lay in the streets of the great city. And if you don't know what the great city is, he gives you a clue at the end of the verse where our Lord was crucified. And so we know that our Lord is who? Jesus. And we know Jesus was crucified where? Jerusalem. Therefore, the great city that we're talking about is Jerusalem. We're focusing here on Israel. And so the bodies of these two witnesses now will lie in the streets of Jerusalem, which is, and it's going to be for three and a half days, which is spiritually noticed called Sodom and Egypt. Well, what on earth does he mean? It's spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Well, there is a picture that's being painted for us by the Holy Spirit into the insight of God as he looks at the nation of Israel in this final hour. In fact, Sodom represents immorality grown into an abomination. It's, in, it's sexual immorality that has festered and festered and has become infected and has infected the whole society. And that's hard for us to believe because when we, when we think about Israel, because we know Sodom had, if we get the word sodomy from it, had an infestation of homosexuality. We know that, right? <clears throat> Probably pedophilia as well. Um, as we watch the scene unfold as the men of the town, the, all, all of the men, young and old, come to Lot's house to basically gang rape the men who had come into Lot's house to, to seek lodging, of which they were angels, but they didn't realize it. And they were there to rape those men. And Sodom, uh, Lot, excuse me, offered his daughters instead. Uh, we can't even fathom that mentality. Uh, it, had, it was so rampant within that society. And when I think about Israel, I'm going to be honest with you, as I was preparing this and I was thinking about Israel, I'm like, Lord, how do you see them that way? How, how do you, what, what does that mean? Because I, I don't see that. If you had said America, I'm like, yep, I see it. <laughs> Y'all know we've been talking about it every week. I see it, Lord. But then I said, well, let me just find out because I like to check things. I like to fact check. I want to make sure. I just want to dig. I want to see what, are we, are we headed in that direction? And I didn't realize it, that Israel Israel is the most gay-friendly nation in the Middle East. Israel is one of the most inclusive societies in the world for lesbianism, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. And Israel adamantly protects the rights of its gay citizens in the LGBT community, is represented in the highest echelons and in all facets of Israeli society, I did not know that. In fact, as we look at the Middle East, and you look at Israel, there's a lot of protests happening in Israel. We haven't paid attention to a lot of things that have happened around the world uh, and, and would have missed the earthquake even in North Carolina 
um, you know, if, if nobody had told me. But we miss a lot of things that are going on worldwide and all of the protests that are happening in Israel this year um, and, and the uprising against Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, the uprising and protest against the annexation of uh, land that Israel needs. And one of the reasons they need to annex more land that actually belongs to them is because more Israelis are still traveling back to Israel to live. The Zionist movement is very strong. Plains land full of people from other places in the world who are going back to Israel, uh, Jews that are still making their way back home from various countries all around the world. That is continuing to happen. But that Israel is, a, is, a, is, a, is still very, very, very secular and is growing like America in immorality more than we realize. He says that spiritually it's called Sodom and Egypt. Well, what does Egypt represent? We know Sodom represents immorality, but Egypt represents a world system of idolatry and rebellion. And so Israel, through the eyes of our Lord, is Sodom and Egypt, the holy city. Can you imagine that? That's what God says about Israel in this last day as he's trying to reach them and turn them to repentance. And if he sees Israel as that, oh, my goodness, I wonder what he sees America as today. So it says that their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, the interesting thing, calling it spiritual Sodom in Egypt is a serious statement. A serious statement. God is painting a picture. And you've got to think about it like this. If you remember this, every Messianic, Messianic Jew, that means a Jew who believes in and worships their true Messiah, Jesus Christ, our brothers and sisters, because we know that he made the two one in the church. Okay, so the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, one in Christ. Okay, we understand that. So when the rapture happens, every Messianic Jew in Israel leaves with the church. Therefore, what's left in Israel is a very small minority of Orthodox religious Jews and a majority secular Israel who will be given over to all of the stuff that the world is given over to. You follow me? So it's a lot easier, if you think about it, to realize these truths even about the land of Israel. And so it's spiritually called that. And I think sometimes what we need to learn to do, church, Christian, especially in this final hour, is learn to see things through spiritual wisdom, to have our eyes open to spiritual things and not just carnal things. And this is what we're called to. First Corinthians chapter two tells us this. It says, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. In other words, there's man's wisdom that teaches us one thing, church. But we who are spirit-filled need to see what the Spirit teaches, church, and to test the spirits. And to look at what God is saying and not what man is saying. Because then your eyes can be open because there's a systematic, and I, I, I said I wasn't going to get into it today, but there's systematic uh, people trying to suppress things, the truths about things. And let me just stay the course. It goes on to say, verse 14 on your screen, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Now, remember, you have your natural carnal man 
who still gives you issues, right? That's the big problem. Your natural man wants to sin and do whatever. Your natural man loves the world and the things of the world, which we're told not to love. But the spirit yearns jealously for us, trying to pull us constantly and point us in a direction that's closer to the Lord and his truth. He says that the, the, he says that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are, notice y'all, spiritually discerned. And in the times we live in, there are things that are going to be spiritually discerned. My prayer as a pastor is that your eyes will be open to see things through the Spirit, that you would know what it is that the Lord has for you to do and how to conduct yourself. In fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. We need to know these things. And just give me a moment to work through this because i got to say it. Peter says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Girding up, simply to make it quick, put on the track shoes of your mind. And, and ladies, take the, to get rid of the, the skirt and put on some running tights, you know, something that can cause you to move swiftly, okay? Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the flow of the language. Gird up the loins of your minds and be putting all of your, your hope and resting it fully upon that which is coming, which is the Lord Jesus Christ coming to meet his church in the air. We need to live with that hope constantly. You catch it? Okay, good. And he goes on to say, uh, as obedient children, not noticing, not conforming yourselves, notice, to the former lust, strong desires that you had. Some of you got to separate yourself from the things of the world that you are so in love with, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. I love the times we live in because God has just given me the freedom I don't care about numbers. I don't care about opinions. All I care about is you walking with the Lord, repenting of sin, and, 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 and following Jesus Christ. I don't even care what you think about me. But I know you love me. I love you all, too. We got a good, you know, I'm just saying we need to understand that. Let's continue now, okay? So spiritually, you know, they, 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 we, as we're going to see, they see things one way. God sees it totally different. We got to keep on going now. First, verse 9, notice it says, and those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the gra- into graves. Notice it says that. In other words, I want you to get this. He says the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days laying in the streets of the great city. Well, where is the great city? Peoples, uh, tribes, tongues means all the people of the earth, okay? Um, despite what some people argue with me about. I think the earth is round, not flat. I don't even answer the phone anymore. It's getting difficult. But even on this side of the globe, we will see it. Now, here's how we test this, okay? Because this, this was not possible to be fulfilled 100 years ago, maybe not quite even 50 years ago. But how many of you on Tuesday saw the explosion that happened in Beirut, Lebanon? How many of you saw it? Okay. And, and that's real time. I'm having a meeting, and I get an alert on my phone. And when I open the alert on my phone, I'm seeing a video of an explosion with a mushroom cloud. Just looked very weird to me happening in Beirut. And I'm, and I'm happy. This is real time. In fact, if you think about it, check this out. 
ahead of every news agency in the world before any of them could report anything, everybody had already communicated with each other through a device. And all of the news agencies, when they reported, they got this little frame video going because they got it from somebody's cell phone because that's how it was captured real time. That's where we're living now. And that's how verse 9 gets fulfilled even in this time that everybody will see their dead bodies laying in the streets and they won't let them be put in the graves. Now, why won't they let them put the bodies in the graves? I'm going to tell you why. It's because they're excited about something. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So here's the flavor of what it is because we're down to five minutes. Literally, they will be so excited that they will develop and come up with a brand new holiday and it'll be a worldwide global holiday, Dead Prophets Day. And we're going to actually go buy stuff and mail gifts to one another to celebrate Dead Prophets Day. Why? Because we're sick of listening to these two clowns. That's what they would say. They've been telling us that we shouldn't do the things that we know we want to do and we need to repent to some God who we want nothing to do with anyway. And we're sick of you telling me that I can't do what makes me feel good, which is how the world feels about God. It's how the world feels about you. And your testimony. And that's why you will see persecution before the rapture happens. Whether you like it or not. Because they don't want to hear it. They're happy these two guys are dead. And I don't think these guys were looking. Look at the verse. And it is because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on earth. I don't think they were tormenting everybody with their plagues. Just those who wanted to harm them. You go back up. It says that in verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them fire comes down. It goes on to say that if anyone wants to harm them at the end of verse 5, they must be killed in this manner. You follow me? So those who attack them will be hit with these plagues for 1,260 days, but the rest of the world are tormented by the message. The message torments. That's why when we so lovingly say to people who want to live differently than what God says, not even us, some Christians are used to be same things that they are. And got saved. So it's, it, the message is very loving. The message is God has something better for you. This is not what he wants. He doesn't want you to live this way because it's hurtful. You might not realize it, but it's not good for you. But God has a plan that's better for you. He sent his son to die. And the message is not harmful. It's not threatening in any form of imagination. But we are hated for the message because it goes against how people feel. And they don't want it. And that's why... In America, this past week, Bibles were burned in streets. And that's just like a drop and a taste of what's coming. Why burn the cross? Why burn a Bible? Why burn the flag? Why, why do these things? It's demonically influenced. That's what it is. And so they will celebrate the prophets being dead because they can't take the message. And I'm going to tell you, as I read the Old Testament prophets, I read the New Testament, there's a pattern. When the society gets to the point where the, where the people no longer want to hear the message, that's one. Then when the church no longer wants to deliver the message and begins to compromise with it, that's two. 
And that, that when those two things come together, and then three is the corruption of leaders, and all three are going in the same direction, that seems to be the point in time when God says, okay, that's enough. The society is at a point where I can't redeem. And that's when judgment comes usually. And that's where we are. That's where we're, we've been approaching it. We're arriving there, and, and it's happening very fast. So I've got to finish this thing up. Verse 11 through 14, really quick, one minute, 45 seconds, says, Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from the Lord entered them, and they stood on their feet, and then an understatement, and great fear fell on those who saw them. <laughs> Can you imagine this? Wait a minute. I just opened my new gift for Dead Prophets Day. We got a new holiday, man. Come on. All of a sudden, we got a new holiday. We're celebrating. And then all of a sudden, around the world, the images begin to hit the phones. Or, well, actually, it won't be phones by then because by then it'd be a bio interface. So you could just be walking down the street and the images are just coming at you. It won't, it won't be phones anymore. And I knew I said I wouldn't get into technology today. I'll save it for Chapter 13. But that's where it's headed. Everybody will instantly know what, what just happened in Jerusalem. They're, they're standing on their feet, and they'll see it. And then they're going to hear something that says, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, or at least the two witnesses will hear it, what everybody else will hear exactly, we're not sure. But notice it says, come up here, same words John heard in chapter 4 when he was caught up into heaven. And probably the same words that we will hear when the trumpet blasts and we're caught up in the air, we might hear something like come up here or come up hither in the, in the King James. We're not sure, but it's a picture here. So they hear come up here in a very loud voice and they ascended to heaven in a cloud. And notice their enemies saw them. So the whole world will see these men come back to life. They didn't even bury them. Dead prophet day. Everybody got pictures of the dead prophets. Everybody's sending gifts. Dead prophets on the posters. Every news agency, the dead prophets, you know. And some of them will just keep it there 24-7. So you can check back in and see if the bodies are still laying there. You know how news is. And it's all day long. Just like you see protests all day long. It'd be dead prophets all day long for three and a half days. 24-7 dead prophets. Everybody celebrating in the streets, drinking. And, and, and I can hear them blowing car horns and cheering and, and you know, and all kind of party. And then they get up on their feet and dust themselves off and look around. And then they out. That's what happens. In verse 13, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake. Not a 5.1 like we had, but a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. Notice that. You got to catch this. These men have been witnessing with a message for three and a half years, okay? They've been using the signs, the plagues of the Old Testament prophets, the law that Moses gave, the, the prophets, which Elijah represents, and they've been duplicating, if you will, those signs. They were killed, and now the world uh, witnesses a real-time resurrection, and ascension. 
And this is the witness that God uses these two men to reflect or to portray towards his nation. And notice the results of it at the end of verse 13. And the rest of the uh, rest were, not world, but the rest were afraid. The rest of who? Those in the great city, those who were not killed. The rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And I think this is a picture. So I think there are two things that are happening. The rider of the white horse, Antichrist. He's our Messiah. We're getting the temple built. This is going to be great. But we got those two witnesses that are in the way and in and, and this, and this conflict in Israel because they're, they're hearing the message of the Antichrist. The temple is going up. They're seeing it. The smoke is starting to rise from the altar, which they hadn't seen in a long time, 2,000 years at least. And then, but we got these prophets who are saying, repent because judgment is coming. That's a false messiah. That's a false temple. You need to turn to God. And all of a sudden, he is able to kill the two witnesses, and everybody thinks he's great. And now they stand up on their feet, and they ascend. Somewhere in here, Antichrist has gone in that temple, and he's declared himself God. And all of a sudden, the Jews' eyes are open. And they're giving glory to the God of heaven. The second woe, verse 14, is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. I'm over time. I actually got verses 15 through 19 done in the first service. I have to go back and hit that next year, next week uh, in detail. You know, so. No, next week, next week. Because <laughs> uh, we're out of time. So bow your heads and as the worship team comes up. You know, these are this things that we see are coming. And I pray that if you bow your heads, close your eyes really quick, I pray the Spirit of God is speaking to you. want to make sure that we can take care of the things that are needful. So if you could close your eyes for a moment, and maybe, maybe one of you in the room are just wrestling with these things yourself, and you need to give, you need to give this a serious, the seriousness due and make a decision. And that decision is to turn from your own way and turn to God, which can only happen through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, whom he gave to the world to die for sin. And it wasn't because none of us were willing to try to deal with our sin. We weren't really, but it's because we couldn't if we wanted to, because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And None of us are qualified to pay the price for that. Only Jesus, who was God, who became a man, could do that. And so we know that the miracle of salvation is something that only God could have achieved. And the miracle of salvation that can happen in your heart right now is something that he can do, has nothing to do with me. But if you sense that and you want to repent of your sin and have them forgiven and to be reconciled to God, then now is your time to raise your hand and receive that. With every eye closed, every head bowed, and only I will see and pray for you before we leave this room. Tomorrow's not promised. If you need to get saved, do it now. Raise your hand so I can see it. Be bold about it, not ashamed. Father, we do thank you this morning for allowing us to be here. Lord, be with us now as we go out of this place and as we go through this week, Lord God, and be with us in our cars, our homes, the marketplaces, all the places that we have to go, the things that we have to deal with in this world, Lord God, this week. But I pray, Lord, that you would do it in this congregation, that you would do it filling them with your joy, giving them a peace, Lord, that where we go and where we walk, Lord, that we're doing it with you. We are your witnesses, your ambassadors, and we have nothing to fear. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.